He forgives, no matter how, what is it, far you run? No matter how far you run, whatever you've done. Whatever you've done, however far you've run, whatever you've done, he forgives. Marvelous truth. He giveth more grace when the burdens are graver. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. Added affliction, he addeth his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and and giveth again. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His grace has no measure. His love has no limit. His power has no boundary known unto man. For of his infinite riches in Jesus. He giveth and giveth and giveth Terrific. Tommy, you're wonderful, and thank you for that marvelous message and song. That's so beautiful and so appropriate. I've got waiting on the mind. Uh, we had a marvelous wedding yesterday, and I had the privilege of performing the ceremony for our daughter, Lisa. I faced a dilemma about how to give her away, being both the one to perform the service and the one to give her away. Uh, someone suggested that I come in and stand there with the robe on, which I wear when I do weddings, and uh, take the robe off and walk out and get Lisa, come back down and put the robe on, stand up and say, who gives this woman to this man in holy matrimony? Take the robe off, put the coat back on, stand up, say her mother and I do, take the coat off, stand up, put the robe back on. But I'm not that good a quick change artist. 
So I decided to just do it all at once. I walked out there, and I brought her down that center aisle. And I want you to know that aisle is four miles long. <laughs> it looks short from this perspective, but when you're standing with your only daughter and the last of three, and you walk down that aisle, you got time for a whole flood of emotions to pour into your life, and they did into mine. I think I pronounced them husband and wife. I'm not real sure. Everybody there told me that I did. I signed a wedding license, and that's what counts. And uh, so I want to talk to you about weddings this morning. Is it, does it fascinate you that God would choose to have his son begin his ministry at a wedding party? I mean, why didn't he do something stupendous, outdo Moses, like part the Mediterranean Sea? Uh, why didn't he just overwhelm people with power? Why did he go to a little half-baked village called Cana on the backside of nowhere to a wedding to begin his ministry? Well, I think as we look at this for just a few moments that maybe some answers will emerge as to why. For that event is filled with significance for the rest of the New Testament and for the rest of us and all of us. Let me read you the account from the second chapter of the Gospel of John. And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they're out of wine. They're out of refreshments. Uh, Jesus said to her, woman, which was not a disrespectful phrase at all. It was just a common expression of the day which was used. Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor do they serve. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, miracles, signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now I want to begin where I think the heart of this story is, and it's right in the middle of the story, where Jesus says to the servants to fill those six water pots with water. Those six water pots were there, as the Scripture says, that were used for the purification of the Jews in their ritual observances. And they held about 20 or 30 gallons apiece. There were six of them. Keep that in mind, six, not seven. Seven, the number of completion, the number of fulfillment. Six, the number of incompleteness, not yet fulfilled, not yet finished. Six water pots, fill them with water. And they did. And then Jesus said, 
draw out now and take to the master of the feast, to the head waiter. There are many language scholars, New Testament scholars, who say that when Jesus said, draw out now, the word he used was a word that would indicate that they were to draw out of not those six water pots, but to draw out of the original source of that water, that spring, bubbling out from the source of life down in the center of the earth. Draw out of the source. And now take that to the head waiter and he will distribute that to the guests. The six water pots stood there, full, complete, but incapable of supplying refreshment. The law and the prophets, Jesus filled up full, all six of them. I did not come, he said, to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. I came to reach back into the very source of the heart and the mind of God and bring you the refreshing wine, the intoxicating, life-giving Spirit of God. So here we have the very heart of God's revelation of himself, not as just one of the law and the prophets, not as a successor to them, but as the very source of life for them and for all of us. So Jesus Christ, in touch with the source himself, with God himself, reached back into the heart and mind of God and found there the new wine of the kingdom of God and distributed it to the guests at the party. It was marvelously and beautifully prophetic. So let me just in passing ask you a question here today. Have you run out of refreshments in your life? Are you just running on the rim? Life lost its spark, its stimulus, its excitement. You have success but not significance. You make a living but don't seem to have a life. Jesus is the man for you today. He'll reach back into the very heart of God himself and he will bring you the new wine of the Spirit of God, new person, new vitality, new energy, new purpose, new direction, new person. He will refresh you, renew you, restore you, reclaim you, revive you. And all of us, he will be willing to accept what he brings from the heart of God himself, namely grace greater than all of our needs and all of our sins. A couple of things I want to mention that this marvelous story says to me, and there are many more that we just don't have time to talk about. One thing it says to me is the authentication of the family. We hear a lot today about family, and we should. The authentication of the family. Let me go back to the very beginning of time. What was the first human institution God created after he created the worlds, the planets, the sun, the moon? After he created the animals and plant life, and all, after God had done all that, what did he do? What was, the, what was the final creation of God? Man. He created man. He says it's not good for man to be alone. He needs relationship. He needs fellowship. 
So he said, let us make him a help me. And so God created man in his own image. Male and female created he them. And then God created not another six days. That all took place in the six days. What did he do on the seventh day? He created a day for relationship with him. That's what the seventh day was for. The apex, the culmination of creation is not the creation of man, but the creation of a man in relationship to God. We're not fulfilled just because we've been created. We're not fulfilled until we have been created and are in a living, vital, personal relationship with our Creator. That's why the seventh day was there. God didn't need the rest. Man needed the relationship. And so what does Jesus do? In his first miracle, he authenticates the priority of his father. To my father, the number one institution was the family in relationship to God. And so Jesus goes to where? Goes to a wedding where a man and a woman are coming together just as Adam and Eve did in God's creative genius in the beginning. And Jesus was there as God's only son to say this is a new creation we're starting here. authenticating family in relationship to the living God, to the Creator. We're never going to have family of significance in America until we get in relationship with God. We can talk all day long and all week long and all election year long about family values, but that's not the issue. That's not going to get things done until we get into a living, personal relationship with God. In fact, I've kind, of, I've, I've kind of run out of enthusiasm for the term family values. It's become a political buzzword. It seems to me that if you're going to use it as a political buzzword, you ought to practice it. You, you... I personally have a hard time believing you can have family, family values if you don't first have family. If you're not committed to family, Family, man to a woman, the woman to a man. Gertrude Himmelfarb has written a marvelous book called The Demoralization of Society. I would recommend it. The D-moralization, the demoralization of society. Let me quote you some words from her. The use of values brings with it the assumption that all moral ideas are subjective and relative, that they are mere customs and conventions, that they have a purely instrumental utilitarian purpose and that they are peculiar to specific individuals and societies. Values, as we now understand that word, do not have to be virtues. They can be beliefs, opinions, attitudes, feelings, habits, conventions, preferences, prejudices, even idiosyncrasies. Whatever any individual, group, or society happens to value at any time for any reason, one cannot say of virtues as one can of values that anyone's virtues are as good as anyone else's or that everyone has a right to his own virtues. Only values can make that claim to moral equality and neutrality. She continues. It was not until the present century that morality became so thoroughly relativized and subjectified that virtues ceased to be virtues 
and became values. The shift from virtues to values has had other unfortunate consequences. When we now speak of virtue, we no longer think of the classical virtues of wisdom, justice, self-control, and courage, or the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love, or the other virtues such as work, thrift, cleanliness, and self-reliance. Virtue is now understood in its sexual connotations of chastity and marital fidelity. This mutation of the word virtue has had the effect first of narrowing the meaning of the word, reducing it to a matter of sexuality, and then of belittling and disparaging the sexual virtues themselves. I wonder if the millions of us who bought William Bennett's bestseller realize the title of that book was the book of virtues, not values. Values means anything you choose to value. Having sex with children, that's my thing. Virtues, virtues, virtues. We must begin with the authentication of family virtues. And they are clearly outlined page upon page, word upon word in God's book. Another word that comes to me out of this marvelous story is Jesus' participation in celebration. Jesus was no long face, face dour, aesthetic, walking around like he'd lost his last friend, pouring cold water on everybody's enthusiasm. Jesus never turned down an invitation to a party. Read the 15th chapter of Luke. Parable after parable after parable of Jesus talks about celebration, about party. Jesus went with anybody, anywhere, anytime to eat and talk. No one ever felt his presence to be a cloud upon the company. No one ever laughed any less because Jesus was there. He came to give us life. He came to give us joy. He came to give us excitement. I have come, he said, to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. Better life than you're ever going to find on your own. That's the kind of life he's come to give. My, we misrepresent him so. In our sincere desire to try to be like Jesus, we end up not being like him at all because we become uh, self-righteous and uh, we become self-critical and we hide behind our Christianity. We're afraid of the world and we, uh, we, we're negative. Jesus was not that way at all. He was a free spirit going with anybody and everywhere. He never stopped to think about himself. He just lost himself thinking about other people. Martha and I have been here a long time now, 37 years. I remember the first year we were here, 1959. We came in October, and that year, Martha and I were invited to every single Sunday school class Christmas party. We'd go to two or three a night, Friday night, Saturday night. We knew... They were all wanting to look at this new preacher and his wife. So we'd go. We'd go to a party and leave early, go to another one, leave, leave that one, go to a third one. It, uh, 
I ate more cake than I've ever wanted to eat again in my life. But we'd go to every one of them. Now, being the new pastor on the block, I knew exactly what was going on when we walked up the front walk to go to the party. They were in there having a good time. They know each other, and the music was playing, and everybody having a great time rejoicing together. Oh, here comes the new preacher. Turn off the music. Mm, change the refreshments. We walk in. Oh, good evening. Good evening, Brother Fanning. We were just sitting here all worrying about world conditions when you walked in. We're glad you're, you've come. You can make us feel worse. You're a preacher. <laughs> oh, and you walk around there, you know, like you're in the cemetery. Walk around there like a mobile death pall. Evening, Brother Fanning. Evening, Brother Fanning. Glad you came. And we'd finally leave, and I knew what would happen the minute the door closed. Whew. Turn the music on. The preacher's gone. You know. Now, I, I'm not blaming people for that. I'm blaming the stereotype that we preachers create of ourselves. Our problem is that we take ourselves too seriously rather than take what we do very seriously. And there's a world of difference. Humility, spirituality is not thinking little of yourself and belittling yourself and trying to act humble. Forgetting yourself is not trying to act at all. Humility is forgetting yourself. It's losing yourself so completely that you are spontaneous and that you are what God created you to be, unique in his mind and in his heart, as one of a kind to bring life and joy and peace and hope to a discouraged world. Celebrate. Celebrate. Jesus participated in celebration. And then this final word, and I think the most important, the revelation, and this excites me. I hope it'll kind of grab your mind as well. This, the revelation of his glory. Jesus redefines the word glory. I, maybe you too, grew up with the idea that the glory of God was in some sort of Shekinah glory where God is above the heavens, above the heavens, that he's remote and powerful and omnipotent and omniscient. That's the glory of God. That's not what he said. That's not what the Bible says. The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In the preceding chapter, first chapter of John, we read these words. The word became flesh. Sarke, fleshy flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us as one of us and we beheld his glory. The glory of what? His humanity. His identification with us. His condescension to leave the celestial heavens and come to the dirty earth. There is revealed the glory of God. The greatest revelation of the glory of God is not in his ascension, but in his crucifixion. He became like 
us and we beheld his glory. He took our sin. And we beheld his glory at a wedding party. We beheld his glory in the flesh. And we come to say with Paul, I glory in the what? In the cross. That's the ultimate revelation of the glory of God. Therefore, and this is a big therefore, that means that God is not where holy things are. Holy spots, holy places, holy lands. God is not where holy things are. Holy things are wherever God is. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Stephen preached that in the book of Acts and got stoned to death for it. That's what he said. God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He dwells in a carpenter who goes to parties and carries crosses. Therefore, the glory of God today is revealed in you. You walk around in holy land shoes for wherever God is, that's holy. And you make your office holy and your school holy and your workplace holy and the golf course or the swimming pool, wherever it is, wherever you go as God's person, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that what he said? Christ in you, in us, the hope of glory. So you walk around on holy ground because you carry God with you and wherever you go, that's holy. That's what his people are, holy people, because God is in us. We're not self-righteous. We know we are a bunch of sinners saved by God's grace, but it is God in us that's the hope of glory, not us that's the hope of glory. And so when we walk around, God walks around with us and he permeates our world. And that's what the minute, those marvelous words of, that Jesus used, those metaphors of penetration, every one of his metaphors, penetration. You're the light of the world. What does the light do? Penetrate darkness. You're the salt of the earth. What does salt do? It penetrates the meat. It penetrates whatever it touches. You're to penetrate the world in which you live. We are to penetrate the world in which we live together as individuals and together as a church and make this city holy. One final word. And when you hear a preacher say final, you know that he's nearly through. About another 20 minutes and he'll be, he'll be through. No, seriously, I've got to say this. One reason we know the holiness and the, of God is in his love for little things. God's concern for little things. I read you earlier about his concern for little people. Little problems. Every now and then I have someone say, Bugger, you know, I think I kind of hate to bother God with this problem. It's so little, so inconsequential. God's concerned with your refreshments running out at your wedding party. That's the kind of God he is. I tell you, when one of my grandchildren comes to me, Avery or Julia or Megan, little Michael, and they come to me with a broken toy, I don't care what I'm doing. I may be preaching, I may be talking on the telephone. Like you, I'll stop anything to fix that toy, to help wipe those tears. And if the toy cannot be fixed, I'll buy another one. 
Well, if I, being a sinner and selfish, if I can do that, how much more does God want to do that? He said it. Jesus said it. If you, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good things to His children? He'll stop to help you tie your shoes. He'll help you with anything that's broken. Your heart, your spirit, your health. He's the God of little things like refreshments at a wedding party. And finally, this really is finally, he saves the best for last. That's what they said. Good night. You know, most people have a wedding party. They serve the good stuff first, and after people have had enough of it, then they bring out the cheap stuff. You save the best till last. He always does. The promised land always comes at the end of the wilderness. Resurrection always follows crucifixion. As the psalmist said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The best is yet to be. So I invite you to Jesus' party. He'll put new life into your spirit. He will bring refreshment to your heart, restoration to relationships, strength for your home, virtues into your life. He'll bind up broken things, and he'll give you the best always the best and ultimately someday when we sit down at the father's table we'll say with a marvelous passage of scripture the half was never told the half was never told don't miss the best trust him follow him become a part of his church he's perfect we're not we need you to walk with us and we'll walk with you and we'll hold hands together and work together and pray together to be better people. We don't ask you to trust us. We cannot save you, but he can. So please don't judge Jesus by us. Look past us to him. You don't judge the great music of Beethoven by the way the kid next door hacks it up on the piano. You know the music is marvelous. That child just learning. That's what we are. We're just learning. So you look to him majesty of this one who's come to be like us. That's his glory. Come meet him. Trust him. Follow him. Join his church. Be a part of his fellowship. I'm here to greet you. Let's stand and let's sing together. Draw.